With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the luxury episode of Slate Money Swag, a mini season where we talk about silver, wine, art, gold, and all manner of asset classes which don't have cash flows but can still rise in value. Today, I'm quite excited that we're going to finally talk about luxury goods. We're going to talk about handbags and watches and sneakers and all those things where people are like, you know, those things can be an investment. And I am joined by Max Bittner. Hi, Max. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you are the CEO of Vestiaire Collective. Is that right? Correct. This is a platform. We will talk about this in a minute where people can buy and sell such things. And we are going to talk about how much you really need to spend in order to have an investment-grade handbag. Spoiler alert, it's actually lower than the amount you need to spend to have an investment-grade work of art. So that's exciting if you want to get into the handbag market. All that coming up on Slate Money Swag. So, Max, so far on this show, we have talked about gold, we have talked about Bitcoin, we have talked about art. All of these things are things that, on some level, people think of as an investment. And you're here, and you're going to talk to me about luxury goods. And I always, historically, have thought of luxury goods as consumption goods. If you have too much money, one of the signs that you have too much money is you go out and spend thousands of dollars on objects just because you can. And you have a company called Vestiaire Collective. Yeah. And I guess one of the ideas there is that if you consume goods by going out and buying them, that like you haven't completely just set your money on fire. Yes. So explain that to me and explain the idea of the mechanism by which luxury goods and, and things that I buy in stores can in some way like retain their value. Sure. Um, so I think just step one, step back, uh, you know, what it is we do, we're a platform where individuals uh, on a C2C basis sell the items that they own um, to other people within our bigger community. We act as a middleman, as in we check the authenticity of the products, we curate the products that get onto our platform but in the end, it's a platform where people buy and sell luxury in affordable fashion. And, you know, the, the idea behind it is that any product on our platform has a value. And that value is different to different people at different times of the life cycle of the product. So compare it to flying from New York or London. And you equate that to an Hermes bag. The person who has an Hermes bag, which is uniquely made for just them, is the person flying on a private jet. The person who buys an Hermes bag uh, directly into the store without having to wait is the person flying first class. The person uh, having a Hermes bag and has to wait for 9, 12, 18 months to get the bag is flying business class. 
um, and you basically go down the and the, the, the who, aisle. And the person who buys knockoff on Canal Street is flying like Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and in the end, it's it's the utility of the product is the same one. Everyone is crossing the Atlantic in some sort of way, um, but we basically find the right time and the right ownership at the right time of the life cycle of that product. Now, in terms of the product, um, the, the custom bag to one side, but clearly, if I walk into a store and buy an Hermes bag versus if I wa walk into a store and put my name on a waiting list and then get it 18 months later, the bag is the same and the value of the bag, the secondary market value of the bag is the same in both cases, right? Yes. Um, but you have probably spent much more money in MS previously to just walk in and get it back. Exactly. So the value of the bag is not really or not mainly a function of how much it cost in the first place. It's the availability also. What drives the secondary market value? Like, and and what is is there any relation to the primary market value? Like, yeah. For so instance, I think if, this, if, the yeah. second the value of a secondhand good is driven by two major you know, fundamentals. The first one is the depreciation of the item. Um, you know, how old is the item? How much has been used? So the, 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 the value of the item is defined by some sort of mechanism where you say the product is worth 60, 70, 80% or potentially north of 100% after six, nine, 12 months. Of like the original retail of price. Of the original retail price. The other big fundamental is how hot or exclusive or unique that item is. You know, that's driven by the trends that are driven by the rarity of the product. Uh, and that's basically an axis where you think, okay, the value can go up or down uh, based on these two major fundamentals. And in terms of the, the luxury world in general, if I go to a, you know, a, a major shopping district in New York or Paris or, or any other rich city, if I buy an item, I don't normally, I mean, I'm not really in that world, but like normally if I just walk into a store and buy an item, it doesn't occur to me that that is some kind of a, a scarce product that like if I buy it and I like it and I say this is really cool and I go up to my friend and say, hey, you should buy one of these. It's really cool. It doesn't occur to me that I bought like the last one and they're not going to be able to. But on some level, what you're saying is that the value of these objects is driven by the fact that the manufacturers just stopped making them at some point. Well, I think if you look at certain brands, they've made a whole business out of making the item that they sell scarce. Yeah, So you can't just walk into any MS store, you can't walk into Patek Philippe store and buy any watch that you want. Certain bags or certain watches are not available. So there is a scarcity. And, so I think and maybe why do they do, do they do that? Because they want these items to retain the secondary market value because they want people to think this on some level is an investment or is that not the primary reason why they do no, that? No, I think the primary reason to do is to charge a very high primary price in the initial sale. Uh, and if you look at the luxury industry, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, uh, you, know, you know, what has happened is a dramatic inflation of the prices at which products get sold. I give you the example, you know, I used to be a junior consultant and back then consultants had to wear suits um, and I had the option to buy, you know, 250, 300 euro Hugo Boss suit. I'm German, so Hugo Boss is the only reason I would wear Hugo Boss. Um, and, and, you know, a Zenia suit at the time would cost 850, 900 euros, which I couldn't afford at the time. Now, fast forward 10, 15 years, that same Zenia suit is costing $2,500. 
the suit is the same, the quality is the same. That's not the inflation of the prices of the material that is being made of. That is purely, you know, the ability of these luxury brands to charge a premium. And, a, and, and one of the reasons you can charge a premium is, is of course, that sense of exclusivity, that sense of uniqueness that the owner of that product in some sort of way wants to show off. And how does that play into the, I mean, presumably suits are never going to be a very good investment because they're literally tailored. Yes. But things like handbags, which are not literally tailored, yeah. uh, are more likely to be able to rise in value. Do you? Is there a syndrome where people either buy pieces on the primary market because they think that they will hold their value or buy pieces on the secondary market because they think they are going to rise in value? Does that happen? I think there's absolutely that kind of speculation that is growing. I think you see that uh, especially happening in the sneaker market right now. You have platforms out there like StockX where people buy items and they never actually own it. They store it at StockX and then resell it and they never actually have the item in their own possession. But I think a, a big line share of consumption, it's still people buying something for themselves. And I think what we're trying to educate consumers about, that they're not buying consumables, but assets, is that they you know, think about the initial purchase price not on its own, but also think about the fact that they can sell this again. And, and, and you know, Vestia Collective is not just about educating people that people are buying assets versus consumables, Vestiaire is really there to promote circularity in some sort of way. And in and, and the bigger kind of zeitgeist shift that we're seeing where sustainability is playing a much bigger role in people's decision-making process when they you know, acquire something, you know, we try to educate people in saying that there are certain products and, and luxury you know, products are, are you know, the best example for that, where by educating consumers that these are assets which have a resale value, they might change their decision-making away from buying cheap, fast fashion uh, and trade up. Instead of buying, let's say, a first-hand Michael Kors bag, they buy a second-hand uh, Gucci bag. And the idea behind that is that the longer every item is worn, you know, every two, three months, you extend the life cycle uh, of a product, um, you dramatically reduce the emission which then has an impact uh, you know, on the planet in some sort of way. And by finding the right owner for the right product at the right time, you promote what is a more sustainable consumer behavior. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. One of the questions I had about 
gold coins was like, what is the round trip cost of buying a gold coin and selling it? Or to put it a different way, like how much does the value of a gold coin need to rise in order for me to break even on buying it and then selling it? And the answer there was about 5%. Mm -hmm. In the case of a Gucci handbag, what's the answer to that question? If I go onto your website and I buy a bag, and then I immediately turn around and sell it like the following day, and it hasn't changed in value. Um, like, how much of a haircut am I going to take there? You know, I think the average logistics cost of shipping the item from the seller to us, for us to authenticate it, and from us to the buyer, depending, of course, how big the shipping route is. Let's say you're sending something from London to to Paris would be, let's let's call it 40, 50 US dollars. So depending on the primary price of the item that you're selling, um, you know that's where you get your percentage and how much it costs. And when we were talking about art, Julia Halperin told me that art only really becomes an investment good as opposed to a consumption good when it starts costing more than about half a million dollars. Is there a similar price point in luxury whereas like when it's cheap it's just something you buy and consume but above a certain level it becomes something you can start reselling and that might conceivably go up in value yes and no i think that's really much tied to the to the sparsity of that product so things can go up in value even at a much lower price point you look at some of those you know unique air jordans that are out there uh, sneakers or or very rare you know other pieces of fashion it, you know the whole idea of a drop and the, the concept of keeping that supply limited and creating a frenzy about getting that item at that first drop results in the immediate appreciation for people who don't have the time to stand on the computer or stand outside a shop and wait for that item to come. So that investment is is not just for really expensive items. So that um, I mean that, but that is in some the... sort of way also a speculation kind of effect that that will have. An appreciation, right? So I can I can make an almost guaranteed profit if I stand in line outside Supreme waiting for a drop, buy a hoodie, and then sell it on eBay. Like that's I, I mean, at the moment, that. I mean, considering the hotness of of these kind of products, you can probably assume that yes. Uh, and there's there's students and you know even high school students who make you know a, a killing out of that yes. But but it's I mean I would not say that this is long term <laughs> investment strategy and I don't think you will have hedge funds being formed around this individual thesis yeah. No. Do you know anyone who considers any kind of luxury good to be an investment? Y yes and no. I think the main thing what we're trying to say when we're saying these are assets is that in comparison to consumable the item is not worth nothing after you're done wearing it however many times you like wearing an item and that by being able to sell it in a second market and, f and us you know empowering you through our community to find a buyer for that it is not lost money and, and, and it basically helps you to change your perspective on how much you're willing to spend a bit more on high quality products which have a longer lifetime than items which you know, have a, you know, fall apart after washing five, six times. Give, give me some price points here. Like, yeah. so if I, if I go along to your platform and I want to buy a investment grade handbag, mm -hmm. say, that will maybe not retain its value, but at least not like just evaporate in value, how much will I need to spend? I think most of, if you look at these, these uh, you know, higher price point items, 
um, such as handbags and and watches, you know, which, you know, I would start at one, two thousand euros or US dollars. You know, you're talking about your basic uh, Chanel timeless bag. Um, you know, you're talking about your lower end Hermes bags, your Louis Vuitton bags. Those items, you know, after 12, 24 months can easily, you know, keep the value at 80, 90% of the original purchase. And and the higher you go and the rarer the product is, and you know, you talk about your Birkin bags, which cost, you know, eight, nine, 10 plus uh, thousand US dollars or euros, you know, a lot of these actually keep their value or even increase uh, because of the sparsity. And, and, you know, very often this time of year, you know, a lot of our buyers of our MS bags, you know, happen to be men, not women, because, you know, they realized too short that this time around they felt really guilty and they wanted to give their <laughs> wife a really expensive present. Uh, and they walk into an Hermes door and they realize, oh, I should have done this six, 12 months ago uh, or even more. So they come on the platform at that point, their price sensitivity is, you know, equal to zero because they just need to get that and they need to get it within days or weeks. Um, so, so there's so, a seasonality? If, absolutely. If, if, yeah. if I want to sell my MS bag, I want to sell it around November time, December? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Does that apply to watches? Well, not so much. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think watches are a very traditional present that, that you give someone. And, you know, when do people give presents? So watches are, you know, definitely see a, you know, a cyclicality. And luxury goods overall, of course, this time of year, November is, is, is a good time for business. A watch is a separate, like, a distinct and separate asset class in their, in their own right. I kind of get the feeling that, you know, there have been watch auctions at Christie's and Sotheby's for decades, that yeah. somehow it's a more established market than the rest of it. Yes. And and if you look at the secondhand market, the, the size of secondhand over the total watch market is much bigger than you would see that in luxury fashion. You know, luxury bags again, is higher than, let's say, ready-to-wear, which is more difficult to sell because you have the differences in sizes um, or not. But I think watches is, you know, has absolutely quite an evolved and 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 uh, sophisticated resale market. Uh, and the luxury brands, so the, the watchmakers, um, have been quite actively involved in that resale market already with luxury players buying uh, secondhand platforms and working, you know, very much hand in hand, you know, to ensure that the secondhand market is managed and in some sort of way under their control. They want the secondary market prices for their goods to be high because it makes... I think they want to ensure that it's A, controlled and B, uh, you know, they want to limit the, the risks of people you know, buying fakes or, you know, in the case of watches, uh, very often, you know, there needs to be a bit of work done in the watch uh, and, and and to control the work that is being done in the watch, you know, in the, like the, in the actual mechanism or the wristband, um, you know, I think is also an opportunity for them to ensure that the, the promise they make to their consumers over the longevity of some of these very high-priced items is fulfilled. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts.
And the fastest growing segment, I think, surely has to be sort of streetwear and sneakers. And like, where did that come from? And and is it a flash in the pan? Or is this going to be around for a while? I mean, I think that's a, that's a very good question. I think streetwear, the whole overall coolness factor of streetwear has absolutely exploded, you know, over the last three, four, five years. And, the you know, my hypothesis is that the participants in that industry, you know, Supreme and Off-White, have just, you know, hit the, the nail on the head and targeted in, in a very sophisticated online audience with millennials and Gen Z. And they've picked up to this whole idea of, of resale, flash sales, drops, using social media to create some sort of a frenzy uh, much better while, you know, I think your more traditional luxury products and more traditional uh, luxury consumers are by definition probably a bit older and less social media frenzic you know, than, than your Gen Z. Um, but in many ways, we're now seeing an adoption of, you know, what the luxury players have seen happening with these younger off-white supreme-like brands and trying to bring that same uniqueness, spareness, uh, sparseness, and, and social media frenzy to other products. So I think they've just been very good at, at innovating around that, and they've have a very receptive customer base. Um, you know, but the luxury industry has been very smart to catch up on that and you know communicate that to their consumers. And I think what we've done in Vestiaire, you know, especially since I've joined. You know, in my previous role, I, I ran a company in Southeast Asia, which was an e-commerce company. And the idea of a flash sale, you know, was very common. We had brands like Xiaomi or Motorola, which back in 2013, 2014 were just such hot products. We had flashes where 20, 30, 40,000 people would be on the website and trying to buy it. And we would have a limited quantity of five, 10,000 products that we would sell and they would sell out within 30, 40 seconds. And um, so for us, that was a very normal concept. And, you know, coming to Vestiaire, and explaining to you know some of my new colleagues that you know the idea of a flash sale could be really exciting, you know I think the first expression in their eyes was was pure horror because <laughs> a flash sale is not something you would do, you know for for luxury because the whole concept of luxury is that it's luxurious and not has a you know frenzy of that sort. But we've started testing with these kind of things, and it's you know in the end it's nothing different than a drop, and and consumers love it. I mean I think they love having this ability to get excited about something. It's it's about engagement. How do we engage with our community? How do we bring people to the belief that that consumption is is can be fun? Yeah, and, and I think our consumers are buying into that a lot. And how do you persuade sellers that they should, I mean, this is a two-sided market, or a three-sided market, because you're in the middle of it, but I can see how you can get buyers excited mm -hmm. about flash sales. How do you get Sellers, um, the, the way we convince sellers to to participate in these, you know, flash sales or campaigns where they potentially drop prices versus the original price that they want to sell at, is to, to mainly create awareness to their store. I mean, every seller, seller on our platform is in some sort of way a micro entrepreneur, and that micro entrepreneur, uh, you know, sits among many other micro entrepreneurs on our platform, and you know, they're all fighting for you know what is our currency, and that's tra traffic. Uh, and how can you get people to follow your store is by creating awareness and participating uh, occasionally in one of these flash sales or or campaigns. Uh, and once they create a followership of people onto their store that they can then uh, directly communicate with sellers on the rest of their assortment that they're selling. One of the things that we've seen in 
live music is the way that the official selling tickets at the box office is, is accounts for like 10% of the tickets now. And that really what all the bands and the venues do is they have an official face value, which they sell 10% of the tickets at, and then they sell the rest of them on, you know, StubHub or some other secondary market venue, and they get much more control over pricing and targeting and that kind of thing. Are you Do you see a future where luxury brands increasingly sell directly into the platforms like yours rather than at, at their own retail outlets? Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of opportunities for the, the brands and the luxury groups to interact with their consumers in different formats than, than what they've experienced so far. You know, I think the name of the game is always about participating in the community, engaging with their community, and um, not just you know, at the primary sale. And if you think about basic customer acquisition uh, for these brands, you know, having a store in Avenue Montaigne or in, in Fifth Avenue is quite expensive, you know, hoping that someone will walk past. Of course, you have the loyal customers who come, you know, buy these stores every time they visit the city or, or you know, travel to New York or Paris or London, but the customer acquisitions are quite high. So, so I think these brands are constantly thinking about how they can expand their potential customer set and you know if you look at vestiaire and and we've done a lot of work on that uh, we just brought out a study with bcg a lot of consumers on vestiaire buy products and brands that they love for the first time second hand because it is more accessible it is slightly cheaper and afterwards they trade up in some sort of way to go to the primary sale so for the brands to interact directly with consumers on our platform i think is a you know win-win situation for us for them and for the consumer Thank you very much. This has been very illuminating. Fantastic. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.